What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 38. The Year of Victories. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by the Countess of Lennox, Harriet Buchanan, and Chad, Earl of Clarendon. If you'd like to find out more, go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Last week, we saw the misfired start of the Marquis of Montrose's royalist campaign in Scotland. After finally receiving a commission from Charles I to prosecute a war against the Scottish Covenanter regime, Montrose had travelled to the north of England to get an army from the Earl of Newcastle. He received this army and crossed the border, but the expedition didn't amount to much. Many of the English soldiers mutinied and returned home, the Scots in the southwest didn't flock to the King's banner, and Montrose had to retreat back into England when the Covenanters noticed him. Far to the northeast, the royalist Marquis of Huntley was spurred to rebellion against the Covenanters, but he quickly abandoned the cause when he found himself outnumbered and without allies. Huntley fled even further north, and will play the character of Sir Not Appearing in this episode. As we left off last week, Montrose returned to Scotland incognito, and linked up with a mixed Irish and Highlander force in the hills of Athol. Over the course of the next year, Montrose will enter Scottish legend with a series of six victories. He will traipse across most of Scotland, north of Stirling, and east of Inverness. No wonder the Covenanter forces had so much trouble catching him. When they did, they almost always heavily outnumbered Montrose's force, and yet each time he triumphed. It is a genuinely impressive campaign, because Montrose will be working with a massive disadvantage in terms of supply and manpower for the entire year. However, it's also one of the most brutal we've seen across the entire podcast, and certainly the most brutal campaign we've seen on the island of Great Britain. As far as content warnings go, today's episode will include references to extreme physical and sexual violence. I'm not going to linger on it, but it's there. You did not 
want to be in the path of Montrose's army, and you definitely did not want to be within a mile of Alistair McCullough if you were a Campbell. This was the Marquis of Montrose's Year of Six Victories. Battle 1. Tippermuir, 1st of September, 1644. After mustering his small army in Athol, Montrose sent a final appeal to the Marquis of Argyll, Archibald Campbell, the effective leader of the Scottish Covenanter government. Montrose urged him and his government to reverse their interventionist policy in England and to submit to the king's authority. Still you may find him like an indulgent father, ready to embrace his penitent children in his arms, although he hath been provoked with unspeakable injuries. But if you shall still continue to be obstinate, I call God to witness that through your own stubbornness I shall be compelled to endeavour to reduce you by force. So I rest, your friend, if you please. To Argyle and to the Committee of Estates, this was a laughable threat. They may even have said, you and whose army, though probably not. Montrose had an army, but it was tiny, titchy, fewer than two and a half thousand men, while the government could call on more than ten times that number. Montrose's army was formed from a coalition of Catholics and Protestants, Irish, Islanders, and Highlanders from a dozen different clans. It would fall apart from a stiff breeze, and the Committee of Estates was more than willing to provide that stiff breeze. Montrose's army marched south. Their first stop was to Castle Menzies, which sat on the River Tay. This was the seat of Clan Menzies, who had been summoned to Montrose's muster, but had instead beaten the messenger and then began harassing his vanguard. The Royalist army raised every Menzies village and field they passed, and moved on, crossing the Tay. They gained more allies after finding a contingent of Covenanter archers, under the command of Lord Kilpoint. Kilpoint was a relative of Montrose, he was a reluctant solemn leaguer, and he was massively outnumbered. So he did the smart thing, and switched sides. Now, Montrose had nearly 3,000 men. But Montrose needed to fight a battle soon. Not least, because he needed to forge some idea of camaraderie among his men. The Committee of Estates was right to predict that infighting would tear his army apart. He needed to instill some discipline and give them a taste of victory, and a reason to keep following him. All this would be found at Perth, to the southeast of Athol. At Perth, the stiff breeze which would disperse this royalist uprising was mustering. An army 6,000 strong. Their officers and cavalry were mostly veterans, but the bulk of the men were militia units, raised quickly, most just a few days before Montrose's army arrived. The cream of the Covenanter military machine was, after all, campaigning in England, and these untested levies would have to do the job. And surely, outnumbering the rebels two to one, they would. With banners declaring the motto of Jesus and no quarter, and their ministers preaching that God was on their side, the Covenanter army, under the command of Lord Elko, formed up on the plain of Tippermuir or Tibermore. Montrose arrived and spread his army out to match the placement of the Covenanters. Since they outnumbered him, his men were only three ranks deep. Risky, but he didn't want to risk being flanked or enveloped 
by the numerically superior force. He sent out envoys to proclaim his royal commission and to invite the enemy army to return to the king's good graces. He was, quote, neither covetous of honours for himself, nor envious of other men's preferment, and had no designs against the lives of his countrymen, end quote. The Covenanters had the envoys arrested. The Battle of Tippermuir was short. Despite being outnumbered and having no cannons of their own, very little horse, and a low proportion of muskets, the Highland and Island troops did what they would become infamous for, the Highland Charge. This was a relatively new tactic, building on principles of Norse and Gallic warfare which had been followed for centuries, but incorporating the use of firearms. It's sometimes credited to McCullough, who first used it at the Battle of the Laney in February 1642. It's simple, but it requires supreme discipline from the men carrying it out. First, they held their fire as they advanced into the perfect range, about a hundred yards from the enemy lines, who would shoot at least one, maybe more, volleys at them as they advanced. Once in position, they fired their own blistering volley of fire and arrow, which took chunks out of the enemy formation. Then they crouched, dropping their ranged weaponry, and drew their claymores and lochaber axes, and ensured their targes and bucklers were firmly fixed to their arms. Shouting battle cries in Gaelic, and supported by pikemen, the Highlanders, Islanders, and Irish flung themselves at the enemy. The one-two punch to morale, first seeing your comrades scythe down in one great volley, and then watching as sword-wielding and axe-heaving men came screaming out of the gunsmoke and straight at you? Understandably, many broke and ran before contact. Others wavered in their positions, and both reactions weakened the enemy formation just when it needed to be as firm as possible. The enemy might get one more volley off, but in that situation most shots would go wide. And then, impact. Taking enemy sword points and pikes on the targes, the charging men rammed swords and swung axes into the enemy. The momentum of the charge would drive them deep into the cracks of the formation left behind by those who had already broken. The shock and awe of the Highland charge, here at Tippermuir and in many more battles to come, worked wonders for the charges. Here, outside Perth, the charge demolished the morale of the enemy. There was heavier fighting on the higher ground of the plain, but the back of the Covenant of Force had been broken, and all that was left was the chase and the slaughter. As always in these battles, the greatest casualties came after one side ran. The Royalists pursued the fleeing Covenanters until nine that night. By the time the chase was called off, more than 1,300 Covenanter troops were dead, and over 800 were taken prisoner. Standards, artillery, weaponry, ammunition, food, drink, the baggage of the officers, it was all plundered. Perth was occupied. Montrose received the keys to the city in a symbolic gesture of submission, and in return Perth was not looted. It was fined, though, and the city paid 60,000 Scottish pounds and donated 1,300 pounds of cloth to dress the army. The suburbs of the city were ransacked, though, and any ammunition or weaponry in the city was taken. But Perth got off lightly. 
Three days after the Battle of Tippermuir, Montrose led his army out of Perth. Word had reached him that Argyle was on the march at the head of his own army, and he didn't want to get trapped in the city. On the 4th of September 1644, Montrose headed north. On the way, many of his Athol men returned home. They'd come for many reasons, but loot was near the top, and Perth had been oh so generous. And even now, in the wake of a great victory, we see one of the lethal cracks in Montrose's campaign. He was leading a coalition of forces with very different priorities, and varying loyalties. Case in point, en route to Dundee, Montrose was woken to find his kinsman, Lord Kilpoint, assassinated by one of his own retainers. Montrose made a great show of his grief for Kilpoint, cradling his lifeless body and weeping. But this may or may not have been fully sincere. It was expected, it was traditional to show this level of grief, and Montrose was a very capable politician. Battle 2. Aberdeen, 13th of September 1644. Poor Aberdeen. I fully admit I'm biased, but it really does seem like Aberdeen suffers the most out of all of Scotland's royal boroughs during this period. After demanding the surrender of Dundee, which was refused, and seeing that the rich city with its busy harbour would withstand a siege, Montrose continued north, retracing his steps from the First Bishop's War. This time, he was leading a royalist army against a Covenanter one, rather than the other way around. And were it not for Viscount Boyne serving in the Carlisle garrison, Montrose would have probably been riding alongside his former opponent in the Battle of the Brigadier. This time, Montrose had crossed the River Dee much further west. There would be no bridge to act as a choke point for his advance. Aberdeen had been held by the Covenanters since Argyle had marched against the Marquess of Huntley earlier in the year. It had never been a stronghold of covenanting, either with the National Covenant or the Solemn League and Covenant. Yet when Montrose arrived on the outskirts of the city on the 13th of September, the Covenanter commander, Lord Burley, had managed to collect enough Covenanter soldiers, including survivors of Perth, to make a core force which was supplemented by a militia drafted from Abedonian citizens. It totaled around 3,000 men. Montrose was once again heavily outnumbered. With the losses from Tippermuir, the desertions by many of the Highlanders, he had around 1,500 men in his own army. He formed his force up on the fields of Justice Mills, just outside the city, and faced the forces of Burley. Like at Perth, Montrose sent an envoy and a drummer boy to the city to meet with the city burgesses. He demanded Aberdeen's immediate surrender, and failing that, urged them to send the women and children out of the city, as he would offer no quarter to anyone who stayed once the city fell. The burgesses conferred, offering their guests food and alcohol as they drafted a reply. When it came, it was a refusal, but not a firm one. It was, as Cowan puts it, a profession of qualified loyalty to the Covenant. Maybe they could have been negotiated into surrendering the city, or the Burgesses might have bought off Montrose with supplies. The Covenanter grip on Aberdeenshire was strained, and Montrose could, and should, have used a soft touch with one of the few royalist-leaning areas of Scotland. Maybe that was Montrose's plan. 
But when the envoy and the drummer boy began their walk back to their own lines, one of the survivors of Perth levelled their musket and shot the boy dead. Why they did this, I don't know. Maybe they'd intended to shoot the envoy, and the inaccuracy of the weapon put toll to that idea. Maybe it was an accident, a misfire. Maybe they just wanted revenge for losses at Tippemuir. Either way, it's an unorthodox negotiating strategy. Montrose was furious, as you would be, and he ordered an immediate attack. With his small number of cavalry on his wings, and McCullough and his Irish in the centre, the Royalists repelled a Covenanter cavalry charge. McCullough and the infantry advanced, fighting through gardens and houses in the Abedonian suburbs, before once again unleashing the devastatingly effective Highland charge. A volley of gunfire, and then glorious melee combat. Again, the Covenanter lines broke in the face of the charge. Lord Burley, as commander, did little commanding, and the whole army was broken. Many fled out into the Shire, but others retreated into the city itself. Montrose let his men follow, and exacted his dreadful promise. No quarter. The sack of Aberdeen lasted over three days. As with all events like this, it gets more and more extreme in the retelling, but at least a hundred citizens were killed by the victorious royalists, with some contemporaries recording many hundreds of deaths. Casualty numbers only tell part of the story. I'll read from Cowan's biography of Montrose here. Quote, the victorious army exacted a terrible price for the life of Montrose's drummer. For three days, the army indulged in an orgy of pillage, rape, and bloodletting. Men were cut down in the streets and in their houses, having been previously stripped to avoid soiling their highly prized clothing. The riches of that town hath made all our soldiers cavaliers, exulted one of Alistair's officers. Nothing could be heard that Friday night, but pitiful howling, crying, weeping, mourning through all the streets. Naked bodies lay where they had fallen. Women were forced where they were found, or sent back to join the camp followers. Spalding listed 98 non-covenanting townsmen by name who were slaughtered in the sack of Aberdeen. They included advocates, burgesses, merchants, maltmen, fishermen, tailors, wrights, millers, websters, a piper, Coordinates, a cooper, a student, a cook, and a gardener. There was hardly a man left to bury the dead. Montrose did attempt to stop the violence after the first night, but he'd let his men off the lead. They wanted blood. They wanted plunder. They wanted women. The appalling brutality of the sack of Aberdeen was, besides anything else, incredibly counterproductive for a commander who was fighting essentially asymmetric warfare. Hearts and mines were needed to provide supplies and reinforcements. Aberdeen and its surrounding area had only been unwillingly part of the Covenant cause. The militia, who had been butchered on the fields of Justice Mills, had been unwillingly conscripted. But through his actions, and the actions of his men, Montrose had shattered any loyalty the locals had to the king. Aberdeenshire would have been a valuable recruiting ground in the lowlands, granting Montrose a counterweight to the Highlander dominance of his army. Montrose was known there. He had been honoured by the city fifteen years before, and he'd gone out of his way to avoid unnecessary damage and death the last time he'd conquered it. 
evicting the Covenanter garrison might have won him many friends. Instead, as Cowan puts it, frustrated by the lack of support he attracted, desirous of making an example, anxious to manifest his authority he may have been. But he was guilty of one of the most unforgivable atrocities of the Scottish War. On that Black Friday, a part of the Gentle Montrose perished forever. Montrose appears to have been unrepentant. From the Mercat Cross, he proclaimed his commission to bring, quote, fire and sword to Scotland to enforce the king's authority. The next week, when news of Argyll's imminent arrival reached him, Montrose ordered his army out of the city. He left one of Scotland's richest boroughs a burning wreck. Hundreds of its citizens were dead, thousands had been robbed, injured, or subjected to appalling violence. Aberdeen would find little relief from the Covenanters. Appeals for taxation relief or financial support to help rebuild were denied due to their previous royalist leanings. Like I said, poor Aberdeen. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Battle 3, in Vallocchi, 2nd of February, 1645. In the aftermath of Aberdeen, Montrose and Argyle danced around each other throughout the northeast. And what a deadly dance it was. To keep his speed, Montrose had most of the artillery he'd captured from Perth and Aberdeen buried, and for the rest of September and most of October, the two Marquises burnt Aberdeenshire to the ground. Argyle put many Gordon lands to the torch, despite the protests of the Gordon nobles in his retinue. It was more important to deny food and recruits to the royalists, but he promised them compensation when all of this was sorted. But promises weren't much good when your house has been burned, and all your food taken, and winter on the way. In response to the Covenanters raising royalist lands, Montrose raised Covenanter lands. Partly this was to try and win the Gordons over to his side, many of whom were caught between a desire to fight for the king and avenge Argyle's scorched earth campaign, and the orders of their chief, Huntley, who refused to let them. On the 28th of October, Montrose and Argyle's armies finally met at Fivey Castle. Again, Montrose was outnumbered by more than two to one, but nothing close to a battle really happened. The Covenanters sent cavalry to skirmish, but they were easily beaten back by Irish musketeers. 
Montrose was in too good a defensive position, and Argyle was no military genius. Argyle withdrew, and after two more skirmishes and some half-hearted negotiations, the two armies prepared to wait out the winter. Argyle resigned his commission. Montrose wanted to let his army rest over the winter, but he had to bow to pressure from McCullough to lead his small army into Campbell territory, which is in roughly the southwest-ish of the Highlands. It's important to remember that Montrose doesn't have ironclad authority over his army. McCullough agreed to serve him and to obey his orders, but that required some give and take. Montrose had an overall royalist-slash-three-kingdoms perspective and agenda. McCullough and the other Highlanders, Islanders and Irish had a much more localised agenda, to secure their positions and those of their families, and to kill their rivals, notably the Campbells. Montrose was happy to go along with this winter raid because it suited his objectives. Argyll was an enemy of the crown, and as the head of Clan Campbell, his lands and tenants were valid targets. Devastating Campbell lands would make Argyll and the Covenanter regime look weak. But Montrose also went along with it because he couldn't have stopped McCullough even if he tried. He'd probably just go anyway, and that would leave Montrose weaker both militarily and politically. They spent most of December raiding Campbell lands and killed upwards of 900 military-aged men. Reinforcements from other Highland clans joined the small force. The victories at Perth and Aberdeen, and the loot they won, was certainly a useful recruiting tool, but also the ascension of the Campbells had left a lot of their Highlander rivals out in the cold, and they wanted payback. After McCullough had his fun, Montrose let his army rest for winter in the Great Glen over the New Year. His army dispersed to better live off the land, find supplies, and recover. In January, Montrose received intelligence that the Covenanters were moving against him, and worryingly, from two directions. The Earl of Seaforth was leading 5,000 men south from the garrison at Inverness. Argyle was marching north at the head of 3,000 Campbells, who were themselves pretty eager to revenge the winter raids. If he wasn't careful, Montrose would find himself bottled up in the Great Glen, with two larger armies to his north and south. He quickly summoned his army back to the Colours, and with 1,500 men, he picked his target, Argyle. Argyle was commanding a smaller force than Seaforth, though even that was twice what Montrose led, but this smaller force wasn't the only reason he'd been picked. As had been shown at Fivey, Argyle was a bit of a wet blanket when it came to warfare. He didn't like campaigning, and he was no military genius. Adding to this, as the chief Campbell leading an army of Campbells, Montrose would have no problem whatsoever motivating his Campbell-hating army into a fight. If he could drive off Argyle, Seaforth might abandon the chase. So Montrose led his men on a march which has been called, quote, one of the greatest exploits in the history of British arms. The Great Glen had only a few paths which an army could safely take, and the two Covenanter armies in the north and south cut them off. So the Royalists went on a flank march, into and over the mountains and hills in the deep Scottish winter, along routes which no one thought an army could take. 
This is Hannibal in the Alps stuff. So when the Royalists arrived to the east of Inverlochy, where Argyle's Covenant of Force was waiting, they had achieved something very special. Exhausted, cold, wet and tired from marching 30 rough miles over 36 hours. But they'd surprised the Covenant army. After spending the night in formation, at the crack of dawn, the Royalists advanced on Argyle's larger force. Except it wasn't Argyle's force that morning. The Marquis himself had withdrawn to his ship on Loch Linney after suffering a shoulder injury. On that morning, the Campbell Covenant army was led by Lord Auchenbreck, Sir Duncan Campbell. Auchenbreck was known to McCullough. Oh, was he known. They'd fought against each other in Ireland, and Auchenbreck was one of the Campbell commanders responsible for ravaging the Antrim lands. Say one thing for Alistair McCullough. Say he holds a grudge. The two armies formed up, with Argyle and observers from the Committee of Estates watching from the ship. They would not like what they saw. Again, as at Perth, Montrose's army was spread thin to match the breadth of the enemy army. Again, the Royalists unleashed the Highland Charge, directed against the left and right wings of the enemy army. And again, it was devastatingly effective. Both wings crumbled, and the Royalists just rolled up the line. With the Covenanters and Campbells running for their lives, the real slaughter began. By Lochaber Axe and Claymore, an estimated 1,500 men were massacred. It doesn't seem to have mattered which direction they ran. Those who ran for Inverlochy Castle were intercepted. Others died at the mouth of the River Nevis. Still more met their end at the site of the modern town of Fort William. The graves of those who fled into Glen Nevis can still be seen today. McCullough himself chased men all the way up the road until they neared Lochlandara, nearly a dozen miles away. He returned to the battlefield for something he wouldn't miss for the world. One of those taken prisoner was Lord Auchenbreck. Famously, McCullough offered his old enemy two choices in Gaelic. To become longer or shorter. Death by hanging or death by beheading. Auchenbreck replied, also in Gaelic, that it was, quote, two evil alternatives that give no room for choice. McCullough took off the top of Auchenbreck's head with a swing of his claymore. Say one thing for Alistair McCullough. Say he holds a grudge. Inverlochy was a devastating defeat for the Covenanter government. But it was more than that for Argyll. He was the Marquis of Argyll, the most powerful military and political figure in Scotland, the head of Clan Campbell, and he had failed. He stood there, on his ship, his arm in a sling, as the crew rowed him away from the shore, and could only watch as his tenants and vassals, his people, his family, were butchered and chased off the field. It's hard to imagine what he felt in that moment. The Royalists had spent the winter rampaging unhindered through his land, and killed hundreds of people who looked to him for protection. Now, at this chance to avenge those deaths, even more Campbells were slain and this time he was there to watch. As the overall commander, of course he shouldered some of the blame, but his overall strategy had been sound. Bottling up the royalists in the Great Glen, 
and crushing them between the two larger Covenanter armies. Who could have expected, who could have even imagined, that the Marquis of Montrose would pass through impassable terrain in the depths of a brutal Scottish winter and descend on his isolated force from snow-covered peaks? His men, despite their numbers, weren't prepared for the Highland charge. Numbers mean nothing if an army breaks and runs. Well, they mean one thing. More dead men on the field. There, but for the grace of God, was he. If not for his shoulder, or, in the judgement of his enemies, his cowardice, he too might have felt the sting of McCullough's claymore. The destruction of one Covenanter army led to the dissolution of another. The Earl of Seaforth, all the way at the other end of the Great Glen, heard the news. Montrose had taken on a force twice his size, emerging from somewhere no army had any right to be, and he'd won. Seaforth turned his army around, disbanded most of it, and returned to garrison Inverness. In Edinburgh, news of the defeat caused panic on the Committee of Estates. Montrose, McCullough, and other leading royalists were convicted of high treason in absentia, which is interesting for three specific reasons. One, that it took so long for the committee to take this step. Montrose was, after all, in open rebellion against their government. Two, again, we see these revolutionary governments in both England and Scotland charging people with treason due to fighting for the king. Three, that from now on, Montrose could fully expect to meet the headsman's axe or the maiden if he were ever captured by the Covenanters. As it turns out, though, he will meet neither. The committee sent another army rushing north, under the command of Lieutenant General William Bailey, to try and block any move south from the victorious royalists. But they needn't have bothered. Montrose returned north. He needed more men, and perhaps now, finally, Huntley and the Gordons would take notice that someone was fighting for their cause, he was winning, and together they could end this. Next week, we will cover the other three victories of Montrose's Year of Victories. By the end, he will reach the pinnacle of his ambitions, Master of Scotland. But it will be a precarious position. Thank you to my entire House of Lords, including Frederick, favourite of the King, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Marquess of Argyle, Bruce Simmons, sorry Bruce, this episode was not a good one for the Marquess of Argyle, the Earl of Tankerville, Christopher Burton. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon, or donated through PayPal, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.